You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Hey, y'all. Spooky season is here. And if you're looking for a show to whet your appetite for a little haunted history, then I'd like to invite you to check out Southern Gothic, a chart-topping history podcast that explores some of the most infamous legends, folklore, ghost stories, and hauntings of the American South. We've covered all sorts of stuff from the Bell Witch of Tennessee to the disappearance of the Confederate submarine, the H.L. Hunley, not to mention our deep dives into the local lore of some of America's oldest and most haunted cities like New Orleans, Charleston, and St. Augustine. So if you're ready for a little good old-fashioned Halloween storytelling with a commitment to quality historical research, then be sure to check out Southern Gothic today. It's available now on all your favorite podcast apps. Monster House presents Monster Talk can be supported by listeners like you at patreon.com forward slash monster talk or by leaving positive reviews on iTunes and other podcasting sites. Learn more at monstertalk.org forward slash support. Thanks to all of you who are supporting us in this way. We are humbled and grateful and hope that we always live up to or exceed your expectations. Today's episode is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook when you sign up for a 30-day trial membership. Just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and look through their incredible collection for your selection. Download and start listening on your phone, computer, or tablet. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Hello, monster talkers. Are you looking for that perfect gift this holiday season? Well, I recommend heading on over to amazon.com and looking up Karen Stolzno. You will find her entire catalog of fantastic both fiction and non-fiction titles. If you need a little extra chill on those chilly winter nights, you can't get a better gift for yourself. Happy Holidays. It's actually quite unlike anything we've ever seen before. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. In Loch Ness, a 24-mile-long bottomless lake in the highlands of Scotland, it's a creature known as the Loch Ness Monster. Welcome to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. Over the past decade, people occasionally have asked me if I think there's any places in the world where monsters might still lurk. They don't mean whether some new species of turtle or beetle or turnip is going to be discovered. They, They mean big monsters, the kind that people tell legends about. And for me, the only place where it seems likely that we might still find a big critter that would truly earn the moniker of monster... That would have to be in the ocean. Sea monster stories predate written history. They come to us in legends and sightings and intriguing bits and pieces that wash up on shore. 
I just got back from a few days by the sea, and it's easy to understand how the vast blue depths could hide huge animals. As if the sheer potential of its breadth and depth were not enough, consider the sightings. Mystery compendiums are full of strange and unusual sightings of woodcuts and photographs and things that are in jars and things that are on shore. But who has the time to investigate and the skill to investigate such cases as this, especially when some of them are more than a century old? Well, at least one person does. And today, we welcome back perhaps the only full-time paid paranatural mystery investigator in the whole world, Joe Nickel. And he's here to tell us about three very interesting sea monster stories that he thinks he solved. This episode's a bit delayed because of a couple of reasons. One is that 2019 has been full of some pretty troubling medical issues for my family, but hopefully those will be resolved later this week. We'll see. But the other and more fun reason is that my awesome employer takes the company every year on a holiday party, and this year we got to go to Key West, Florida. Now, I know most people think of Key West as the home to a laid-back beach lifestyle, but for me and Team Smith, it was an opportunity to visit one of the subjects of an episode of Monster Talk. Yes, I got to take my family to go see Robert the Doll at the 40s Martello Museum in Key West. If you haven't heard our episode number 114 on demon dolls, you should at least go listen to the true and terrifying doll story that opens the episode. I believe I've gotten more feedback on that true story than perhaps anything we've covered on this show. And with that in mind, visiting Robert was a real treat. And no, I did not ask his permission to take his photo, but... I have it on good authority that if you spend more than $100 in the gift shop, Robert will give you an indulgent as regards his curse. It's a podcast. Can you hear me winking? We also got to go see a place that will be covered in an upcoming episode of In Research Of, another podcast I do through Monster House Publishing. After 40 years of wishing, I finally got to go see Coral Castle in Homestead, Florida, and that was very, very satisfying. But my trips are over, and hopefully the medical issues will be soon, too. And I'm back and editing furiously to get you plenty of December content, including our Christmas Eve ghost stories. So stay tuned. For now, it's time to join Joe Nickel in a long overdue return to Monster Talk. That sounds promising. Yeah. Joe Nickel's answering machine. Hey. <laughs> I don't believe that. I think we're all connected. <laughs> yeah. Finally, after a month of trying. <laughs> yes, it I, seems like an eternity. Yes, but uh, but I was reassured. I was reassured. My psychic told me you would call. So. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I told Karen I thought it was a curse, but that I'm going to go see Robert the doll, and I will uh, obviously give it a letter of apology. It'll fix everything. What? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Joe, we, we're having you on to talk about three different sea monster cases. So mm. I'm, uh, I'm very excited about this. Uh, all three of these are, as I told Karen, right up my alley. We, we both love historical cases. And mm. uh, this is these are all really great. So let's just dive right in if you're okay with it. Excuse yes, me. absolutely. So I, I didn't have any particular order, uh, but I thought maybe let's start with the White River monster. Um, and we'll kind of do the same kind of format where we'll just sort of set the stage for what was originally claimed and then kind of go from there. I might, I might just uh, say a word about what, what I think I'm doing, you know. With, sure, absolutely. Uh, Joe, yeah. In, in, in the broadest sense with my life, I, I made a, 
uh, commitment back about 1969 that I was going to look into strange mysteries. I, I knew I was a detective when I was eight years old, but I got distracted through the turbulent 60s and and ended up in, in Canada as a federal fugitive because of the Vietnam War and was the magician eventually at the Houdini Hall of Fame. And that's where I met James Randi. He was a big influence on me, and, and he knows it. And I wanted to do something like that. I wanted to do something. I didn't want to copy him, and, and I, I basically haven't done challenges and that sort of thing. I just wanted to pl- apply the detective approach to, you know, paranormal mysteries, or or not even paranormal. I've eventually gone on and decided a good literary mystery or a homicide. I've worked as a homicide consultant while I was in graduate school. So I'm just trying to not be a debunker, but to, to be someone who's looking at finding mysteries mm-hmm. and then seeking to find the evidence that might provide the most plausible solution. And um, I I sometimes think of myself as uh, what my friend Massimo Polidoro calls me, the detective of the impossible, which is my favorite, (laughs) my favorite title that he bestowed on me. Or um, I sometimes when we come to the monsters, that that particular category, I think of myself as a paranatural naturalist, which means I'm looking at these paranatural or paranormal claims, but my mission, I think, is to find out what real-life creature most closely approximates that. Right. Sort of once, once I've figured out that it's probably not a hoax, the, and, and and you know those are all dicey concepts, but but if we look at the things I've done, like the uh, the Flatwoods Monster or Mothman or some of those or or various um, uh, hairy man beasts like the Florida Skunk Ape, um, and and I've tried to find out what what exactly in this area could have looked something like that, and then to account for any discrepancies. Like the Flatwoods Monster was, I thought it was a barn owl, and I had just quite a bit of evidence for that. But then the uh, the creature was some 10 feet tall. Mm-hmm. But I quickly realized that the barn owl was no doubt perching on a limb <laughs> before it before it came at these people with its, quote, terrible claws. And I, I think I solved that mystery. And and since then, I've, as you know, I've tried my hand at various others, and I have some on the kind of on the drawing board that I'm working on. And well, that was too much of a preamble. Sorry. No, 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 no it's okay. How do you how do you pick your cases? Well, that's the hard part, and that's the secret I don't share with anyone. Oh, okay. But, uh, <laughs> just, well, I'm I'm sort of kidding, but um, I I don't normally talk around about what I, people are. The most asked question of me, I think, I think it's the question I'm asked most. What are you working on now? Mm-hmm. 
And and I've just learned the hard way, don't answer that. Right, right. Because somebody will be then trying to get ahead of you. Yeah. Yeah, I know what you mean. Stirring stirring the water or, you know, or something. And we could even maybe name one or two of the people who might be most apt to do something like that. So <laughs> we we could anyway. <laughs> we won't. That's right. We're we're far too nice to do something like that. Indeed. So I I but I do uh, keep an eye out. You know, I'm I'm looking at old uh, accounts of things and books of unexplained and so forth all the time. Mm-hmm. And. That that serves me well because I will come across something that uh, I think I was just watching um, one of the um, episodes of Mysteries at the Museum, mm-hmm. uh, the Travel Channel show, and I've been, I've been on that series a few times. In fact, one time recently they had an actor play me. Which is the most uncomfortable feeling? Wow! Uh, I I didn't think the guy was. Oh, I didn't think the guy was nearly handsome enough. And it was just, <laughs> you know, it was just um, creepy to have have yourself played. Yeah. But I, one of those episodes was the um, the White River Monster, and Roy Mackles, uh, the the cryptozoologist. Um, his his idea of what it was, and I thought I don't know about that, and and I just made a note to myself, look into that, mm-hmm. and uh, here we are. There you go. <laughs> it seems like a lot of the uh, the sightings go back over a hundred years for the White River Monster. That's right, and uh, so. When you see uh, a bunch of uh, sightings from, say, 1912 and 15 and 17 and on up 1937 uh, and into the 70s, um, there's there's something going on. In my my the subtitle of my article is very real, but what was it? Mm-hmm. You know, um, and. So it, it, it's very likely that this is not a hoax, you see. As soon as you mm-hmm. find these multiple sightings, I do caution that when there are different sightings of something, it may not be the same creature. Mm-hmm. So you'll find other sightings of Mothman in other places and times. And you you mustn't just... Assume that therefore, oh, that's Nichols' barred owl. That's that's the barred owl, and um, no, it 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 might be a barn owl after all, or it may be a, a hoax. Um, it may never have happened. So, but in this case, uh, when you look at the accounts, it looks like there really was something, and. Descriptions varied, but I still was persuaded it was likely to be the same creature because if for no other reason than I couldn't imagine there being too many different kinds of creatures that would be this gigantic blob in the middle of Mm -hmm. the White River where it didn't belong. So I, I figured, yeah, there's something, something, and and the variations in the description are just... 
people, you know, having a different sense of what they're seeing or, or as Mackle well knew, um, people misjudge the size of, he particularly mentioned this, of creatures in water. It's hard to judge right. how big they are. But in fact, they the same holds true whether they're on land or in air. Right. And uh, so there have been a lot of natural or posited natural explanations for what the White River monster is, but you came up with a, a different explanation too. Can you tell us a little bit about what other people have thought it was and what you think it might be? Well, people didn't really say much about what they thought it was. It just was so foreign. Um, there was there was not a lot of of uh, thought about it. It's it's just what people were describing as foreign to that that waterway. And Mackle did made a lot of sense. Mackle was not a, a fool, and he was you know he, he was a more reasonable than some cryptozoologists, and he thought that uh, he had an idea that it was a uh, an elephant uh, an elephant seal. Okay. And there, the trouble is when you you know, and and he he tossed that off kind of with a wave of the hand, and you think, oh yeah, a big blob, gray blob of a creature, sure. <laughs> and he thinks it was just outside its its normal range and kind of dismisses it then. But think a minute, there are two types of elephant seals. There's the northern one, which is um, located in the Pacific, and it would um, have to have swum down and had its papers in order and gone through the the uh, canal, the Panama mm-hmm. Canal, and it would have had to have its inspection papers and everything in order. <laughs> yeah. So that didn't seem very logical to me, how it could get over where it needed to get. Mm-hmm to have access to the White River. And the other one is the southern elephant seal, which is in the Antarctic region and and is just not seen above the equator. So Mackle was really not, I don't know whether he didn't pay enough attention and just sort of um, didn't really look them up. I looked them up. (laughs) I, I puzzled over how on earth you could get one of these huge creatures into the Gulf of Mexico. Mm-hmm. And the more I thought about it, the more skeptical I became and finally remembered that the last time I had been at the Gulf of Mexico was when I was in the Florida Panhandle region and I was seeing signs and pictures and stuff of of the manatee. Mm. And I thought, now there's a big gray blob. <laughs> yeah. And you know, not as not as big as the others, but again, the eyewitness descriptions were all over the place as to size. And I thought, well, let's just let's not do what Mackle did. Let's not claim Eureka yet. <laughs> let's let's just take our time and and look you know read up on the manatee 
because I was, you know, I, I was in that area looking for the skunk ape and the manatee wasn't of much interest to me at, at the time I was there. But I remembered, mm-hmm. oh, there's that's that's there. And it would already give me a big blob right at the mouth of the Mississippi, ready to swim, swim north. Mm-hmm. And it's so much, much more convenient if you're trying to solve the mystery, if you've got one already in the Gulf than if you have to move it a thousand miles or some incredible distance or, or again, have its papers in order um, to get, to get to the Gulf of Mexico better. If you can just start right there. Mm -hmm. So I, I was off and running and uh, it turned out that I, I not too long. Thanks to Mr. Google. (laughs) <laughs> I was able to find well he's very helpful yeah yeah he, yeah he's modest. he's modest he doesn't he doesn't you know intrude very much and um, so it 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 happens that uh, I found a particular example where a manatee had done just what I needed. In 2006, because we don't know of a elephant seal ever, ever doing this, you see. Okay. So it's even it's even more far fetched because Mackel needed one to do this several times over a period of time. So just one really far fetched case. Yeah, you might accept that, but you couldn't accept a repeated events. But but maybe you could with the manatee. And uh, I found one that had traveled in um, 2006, about 720 miles up the Mississippi. Wow. Uh, wow. Yeah. Almost to Memphis. <laughs> and that was well documented. And uh, so then, then I, I invoked the rule of Occam's razor. And screamed Eureka. <laughs> that was that was sort of how how I did it. I, I, along the way, I did, I did check out some other things. There was some of the behavior, making a blowing noise and kind of rising up with the churning water and stuff. And um, there were there were just a few features like that. One of one of the most interesting to me was um, people would find along the shore these sort of three-toed tracks. And that was a further mystery, but but in fact, uh, manatees will climb up on the shore to get uh, vegetation, and uh, they have a foot that could leave just such tracks. So I couldn't put too fine a point on that because I didn't have pictures of the tracks or anything. If they exist, I didn't I didn't find them. But it uh, seems to me that until somebody comes along with a an even better, i.e., uh, simpler explanation, I'm, I'm going to I'm going to claim the manatee as as the most likely because we have we have it in the in the Gulf of Mexico. We know they can swim great distances up a freshwater river. Mm-hmm. And they can uh, pretty much mimic everything we need 
I just think it's a very good solution. And, and uh, yeah. I'm going to quote yourself at you. Uh, the, oh, <laughs> oh, no, no. Just don't pretend to be him. No, no, just you've got this phrase that you like to use, and I, I it's really great. Preferred hypothesis. Yes, and you know, that's, I'm glad you, you know, I've, I've, I've said that you're a bright fellow. <laughs> uh, you're the only one. <laughs> and, and not entirely, not always to people who thought otherwise. They, they, they say that's a you know, side effect of the stroke. Blake, Blake is a sharp, sharp kid, you know. And I can think of you as a kid the same way James Randi thinks of me as a kid. I'm, I'm about to have my 75th birthday. And Randy still thinks of me as a as a kid because I was in my early twenties when he <laughs> first started do, doing things with me, and, and you know, and and he'll always think of me as just a you know a young kid. But um, yeah, the preferred hypothesis I came up with that. I, I, I'm not saying I'm the only person who's ever used that phrase. I don't I don't know, but I needed something. I needed a term because I was working on my doing my doctoral work and I was doing it in English literature, but I was doing it specifically on literary investigation. And that's not a field really that literary scholars uh, think of as a special field. They just think, you know, if you're a critic or something, you naturally you might have to do a little investigative digging or something about a an author's methods or something in in the course of your work. But I had tried to identify it as a particular field worthy in its own right and to apply detective principles to things. And and I came upon this this uh, problem of what do you do when you're one of, say, three or four scholars who each have a different um, notion about what might have happened. Mm-hmm. And I tried to find a way to say, in a few words, how you would sort that out. Right. That you would have, uh, you know, it wouldn't be the standard of, of, a, of a homicide trial of beyond a reasonable doubt. And it might be a little more than people's court where you only had to tip the balance like, well, she kind of blinked her eyes every time I thought she lied, you know, uh, or something. Uh, and, and, I, and I wanted to say there, there, there are kind of objective ways how you can say there's a preferred hypothesis. And Occam's razor is, is just suitable for that discussion. And that's what you end up with is you you try to say, I in this case if I put Roy Mackle on you know on one side and I have moi on the other, um, I would say, as I think I've already said now, so I won't say it again that his was far fetched mm-hmm. and not not a very good explanation, maybe better than nothing, and. I was pretty much able to say you could put it in a, maybe even in a tabular form, uh, side by side comparison of features or something. In some cases, you could work it out, but um, you might be able then to argue to your reader, 
or to the Nobel Committee, you know, or whoever, uh, <laughs> why your why your um, proposal is the preferred hypothesis, meaning the one with the fewest assumptions. Yeah, I, I, it's it's so, been a, it's been a question of mine for a while. Is why has the Nobel uh, Prize Committee avoided? Paranatural research uh, for prize awarding, uh, you know. So as soon as they get that sorted, I'm oh, sure. Oh, I thought be... you were going to say why they avoided me. <laughs> no, no, and I think I, that's I a category. I, that, think, yeah, I, yeah. Won't, <laughs> I won't go into it. But yeah, um, this is the irony of what we're doing. You know, we we're working on these paranormal cases that so many people think are silly in the first place, and if you if you solve them. Uh, instead of there being a great deal of fanfare and prize giving and so forth, people just say, "Well, that's enough of that." Or, know, or even worse, forgotten. well, of course that's the well, answer. Well, they continue. Right? Like, it, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's <laughs> obvious. Oh, that's the one thing that irks me is is the people who say, "Oh, that was obvious." And you know Sherlock yeah. Holmes had said that everything is obvious after it's been explained. Right. right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so. Well, let's move on to your next case. By the way, we're going to put uh, links in the show notes to all this research. So these are great articles. Mm-hmm. Uh, and we're, unfortunately, because of time, we're only scratching the surface of the work that went into these. But I, I appreciate that. That's you right. So. Well, thank you. I, I, you know, you ultimately, you do have to, you have to put it in print somewhere. I think print is, is very, very good compared to doing it on a, television show or something because you you have the references and you can go into some detail sure um well yeah we've got two other cases uh, that you've been working on of late um so should we look at the so many done yeah so yes so so many done and so many yet to do yeah is it is it is it gloucester is it gloucester is that how you say it i think i think gloucester Gloucester. yeah yeah. gloucester Not Gloucester, uh, right? <laughs> I know. <laughs> Gloucester. And uh, it's like Worcester in Worcestershire. It's not Worcestershire sauce. It's <laughs> yeah. Worcester. It's Gloucester. And um, this is this is a sea, sea mystery that waited for two centuries. It had my name on it. I, I came across it again after some years and... And uh, it, it occurred in, in uh, 1817 and then probably the same creature in 1819. But I, I would be prepared if somebody made a strong case um, that that might have been something else again. The, the really good evidence is 1817, and sure as hell something strange happened. And uh, there were uh, crowds of people that gathered there in in Gloucester Bay and Nahant Bay, Massachusetts, and they were seeing clearly something. There were just bunches of eyewitnesses, and they saw this, what they thought was a sea serpent. Okay. And I have a few advantages, one of which, not only Mr. Google to help me, but I also have the modern perspective. We're pretty sure that there is not a great serpentine creature in the ocean, 
right? Mm-hmm. We're pretty sure of that. Now, I know there are vast <laughs> reaches and depths and so forth, but just not very likely if we're going to look for the preferred hypothesis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I I looked at it with interest, realized a few things at the outset, and not all of it's in the article. You know, you, you, you never have time for really everything unless you do a book, and then you have too, maybe too much space and <laughs> you have to fill it up. Right. You know, but it's um it was clear to me pretty early on that I was not going to spend a lot of time on this serpent model and that uh, I looked at some of the eyewitness reports there were quite a few of these and the Linnaean society gathered lots of these statements by people it was very useful ultimately they gathered the statements so this was some science they got a little silly at a point or two and but they did collect these accounts, and most of the accounts seemed not to have the creature uh, swimming laterally like a serpent, but swimming in an up-and-down undulation, and that's a pretty sure indication of a mammal. Yeah, that's an important <laughs> distinction. And then, and, and I, I have a good deal of experience uh, with creatures that were not unlike this, although not so much with the ocean, but with lake monsters. But I've, you know, I've cranked out a lot of material about lake monsters. And when you see, think of think of how many lake monster stories you've seen in various lakes uh, where they were mul- the creature was multi-humped. And there are drawings of these. In, in various books showing the different humps. Do you know of a multi-humped creature? Anywhere? Aside from a camel. Yep. <laughs> well, exactly. Exactly the camel. I was waiting to give you that line. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, and you can get more humps by having more swimming camels, but we don't have to go into that. But you see the point I'm making. Yeah, yeah. Once they were, they kept talking. They were counting humps. Martha, how many counts did you? How many humps did you count? <laughs> and uh, back and forth, and people using a spyglass and and looking way out there and counting humps. And I was just pretty sure from my work. Whenever I've had multiple humps, I've probably had multiple creatures. Mm-hmm. And I'm rather infamous for having suggested that sometimes uh, lake monsters may be one, two, three, four otters swimming in a line. And I get kidded about it, maybe mostly by cryptozoologists and others who want to, you know, put me down, mm-hmm. um, as if as if I say that all the time about every every monster case, and I I do no such thing. I only apply it like at Lake Crescent, Newfoundland, when people were saying that they had multiple humps and an up and down undulation and, you know, some other characteristics. And then I've said, well, that could be that could be otters. Mm -hmm. And so let me say right here and now that 
I'm not claiming that all uh, multi-humped creatures are otters. Some are beavers. <laughs> I wanted to wait till that laughter was through before I kept Yeah, that's a that's a little joke I had learned. Um, I used that a time or two with yeah, high school students, sure. and I thought, oh, I can use that again. Yeah, yeah that'll that'll that's a good. That's it, a it'll good play. Game. It'll play. Yep. Yeah, <laughs> it'll play. So I, I, but to be serious for a moment, I so I you see my thinking. I'm already. In looking at these old accounts 200 years ago and seeing, uh, okay, there's a crowd of people and they're looking through their spyglasses. A few people have gone out in boats. One of them shot at the creature. Uh, some of them got a close-up look at certain parts of it. But they kept fitting everything to this serpent model and this multi-humped model. And then there were there were four guys who saw this effect and they got so close I, I wish I could go back in my time machine and say to them guys you were so close it was so good when you said it was you first thought it was a school of pilot whales <sighs> you just don't know how close you were but then damn it you went on and said but then we realized it was the sea serpent after all <laughs> or you know, or something. And then, you know, then oh, how sad! How sad! <laughs> hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to sixty percent on hotels. So whether it's cousin Kevin's kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin, or Becky's bachelorette bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hello, I'm Paul Giamatti. And I'm Stephen Asma. Each week on Chinwag, we dig into the weird topics you wonder about, that you care about. The stuff none of us are totally sure of, like the Bermuda Triangle, Mothman, Consciousness, Philosophy, UFOs, Ghosts, or say Bigfoot. So who's to say that there's not alien species that are Sasquatch? Like I've seen a ghost, and I would hear something walking and breathing. Maybe every path is right. I will accept as a premise that every path is right. That is a face on Mars. Eyes, nose, it kind of looked like Wilson the volleyball. Some people enjoy the waves or whatever uh, crashing, and I enjoy listening to a quantum physics audiobook. I do think there are many things in the world that we just don't understand yeah. and probably won't understand. That's our whole show. <laughs> so join us every Wednesday on all major podcast platforms and find us on Instagram, TikTok, and Twitter at ChinwagPod and Wagon. And, but it, but it reinforced my thinking because it gave me a model of, you know, some reasonably experienced guys were seeing something and they thought it could be just pretty close what I was beginning to think it might be. Mm -hmm. A group of, you know, of medium-sized uh, mammals and uh, swimming as a school or what have you. Okay. And then I found the one other little clue that made, I think, made all the difference. You know what I'm talking about. This is... 
yeah. yeah. I don't want to spoil it. You just go ahead and say it. What? <laughs> well, I, I found that there was an account that mentioned that the, the serpent had a stinger. Exactly. And, and this is back this is back in a time when serpents stung you. Well, they don't. You see, again, we know now that serpents just bite you with fangs. Mm-hmm. Um, although a sea serpent might be different, but um and and they were thinking that this stinger or this tongue might have been um what they were seeing another serpentine aspect and i'm thinking no you see that i need to think about this and it it seemed like they were describing something that was rigid like a like a tusk Mm -hmm. coming off of the the face of the creature and i had a one of those real moments where you you stop and think um, how many creatures are there in the ocean that we know about that has a tusk coming off its forehead? Mm-hmm. And you think of the swordfish, but that's not really, really operable. Um, and then it hit me that probably only one creature in the world, uh, the entire world, had that, and that was the as an aquatic creature. And that was the the narwhal, mm-hmm. sometimes called a narwhale. That's right. And I just th- thought a lot about that and, and wondered, you know, where am I now? Uh, is, is that sh- for sure? Who's going to believe that? What's the other argument? You know, what are the people who are going to want to take me down and, you know, and go back to the serpent? What are they going to say? And. They say maybe it was the creature's tongue, and I thought, yeah, but I don't think so. And so I decided that what I had to do was see if among these Linnaean Society statements that they took, if anybody else had seen that. And so I told our librarian here, Tim Binga, to get me some more books. So I, I use I use that. It's Mr. Google and Mr. Binga. This is these are the <laughs> two of my helpers. Mind you, not Bing Binga, right? <laughs> That's the That's the, right. Yeah. <laughs> no, yay. So Good distinction. Uh, I got more books and plowed through some of these other reports, and I found two more. The first one that I had said this stinger or tusk. The others used other terms: spear, tusk, something like that. And and so we had one that was four feet, one was about two feet, and one was about 12 inches. And the narwhal has these, and the longer the tusk, the older the creature. So we could say something roughly about the age, you see. The 12-inch one's probably a young, a young creature. And they're mostly males, but I found out some of the females had tusks as well, usually not as long. So it's not entirely a male trait, but pretty pretty much so. And, uh, and they indeed travel in a school or what's called a pod. And I began at that point then to, to sit back and... and uh, in the old days, I would have had another glass of bourbon, but I don't <laughs> not not allowed to have that anymore. 
so uh, I just began to look at, at, at over what I had, and I thought, I think I have pretty much all the components. It's not a serpent. It's not a, a multi-humped creature. It's it's a medium-sized whale group, or a group of medium-sized whales, and that's creating the illusion. And uh, some people were probably seeing just one creature sometimes, and at other times they were seeing a group because it's, you know, sort of back to Roy Mackle. People don't know what they're seeing in the water. They're just seeing what sticks up, and it's very confusing and so on. So that's when I was pretty well ready to say, I've, I've you know, Eureka, and I've got... I've solved this, and it's the narwhal, uh, but it's it it was uncomfortably out of the narwhal's range. It was too far to be in in Massachusetts. It was pretty far south, and so I thought back about <laughs> Mackle and and you know the preferred hypothesis and all these things, mm-hmm. and I thought. You know, damn it, I'm just sure that that this is this is the narwhal. It just fits. And who am I to say, you know, creatures do get out of their range, and this is not maybe unheard of for the narwhals. And I suspected there was some kind of some kind of climate issue that had lured or driven them south at least this one grouping. And I didn't know what it was, but I decided to go ahead and publish because I I was worried that some middle schoolers were going to figure out it was a narwhal <laughs> momentarily and um, that I better better get uh, get cracking with what I had. <laughs> and, uh, uh, you said nice, get cracking. <laughs> nice lead-in. <laughs> so... Um, it turns out that uh, no sooner had my colleague Tom Flynn read my article after it came out that he said to me, aren't you aware of the year with no summer? And I said, no, what's that? He said, well, look it up, look it up. So I looked it up. Wikipedia has a whole entry on that, and that's the year just before, 1817, when we need it, the year before, was a big climate uh, issue when a volcano spewed such a huge amount of ash in the air that it, it changed a big section of the world's climate, and... Uh, affected the northeastern United States pretty profoundly. People lost their crops, and they really were real problems with it. And that was, so that was 1816, and I suspect, I have not had time to really look deeply into that yet, but I, I think that's probably it, that the water, the Water was colder then and remained so for the next several months. 
and it lured some narwhals off. Amazing. If that's not if that's not what happened, then I have to think it's just an incredible coincidence. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, I really mm-hmm. I need to find some more figures, but from what people have read me over the phone and some things, I think that there's some data on that, and uh, the water was was cold, and it probably suited the the narwhals who would have not paid any attention to the volcanic issue. (laughs) They would have just naturally been drawn to to the south. They could Uh have expanded their range. And so I I think we're right about about the the Gloucester monster as well. And not otters or beavers. Or horned camels. The, oh, oh, yeah. Yeah, but different theory. <laughs> That's right. So, so the idea that some menagerie operator got drunk, took some camels out, strapped on a horn, and thought this will be great fun, <laughs> and set them out in the water. That's on the one hand a hypothesis. And, yeah. and I'm going to claim with the narwhals the preferred hypothesis. Well, if you that must. the dispreferred hypothesis. <laughs> Please feel free to bring this to the attention at long last of the Nobel Committee. Oh, uh, indeed. I've certainly got very few awards, and I'm, I'm, I'm sure that I'm, the work I'm doing is not because anybody's giving me a lot of awards. Yeah, mm-hmm. certainly not cash awards. The, the this uh, this the Gloucester Sea Monster was uh, investigated uh, in the, by Bernard Huvelmans, but I was uh, I was recently trying to find out exactly how to pronounce his name, and I found online some people who in France who say it's Bernard Huvelmans, and I just I love it. <laughs> I can't <laughs> to say it. <laughs> I just well, want to say it. You know, know I, I take a position with a lot of these things. I mean, uh, if, do you say Paris? Uh, I don't. I just say Paris. Well, there you go. And I'm comfortable because I'm speaking English. Yeah. So I, I think it's okay to use the English pronunciation. I say Hovelmans. I say, I say, I say, uh, La Bête du Gévaudon. <laughs> We just let him have it, Joe. Yeah, I I speak uh, red. red, I'm like redneck, 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 but not (laughs) usual malls. Code switching thing. Very fancy. I think think, uh, it's okay to pronounce things. I I remember a professor once when I was an undergraduate, which is, you know, anciently ago, um, who was giving a talk on Vincent van Gogh. Oh, yeah. And I think he said once, van Gogh, or something, and he clasped his throat and said, okay, there you have it, ladies and gentlemen. I'm not going to tear out my throat the rest of this talk. (laughs) (laughs) It was a really funny funny presentation. Oh, yeah, yeah. Made a point. I've heard it pronounced correctly, and I won't even attempt it. But uh, you know, Van Gogh, Van Gogh, neither of those are right. But but you know, as long as we know who we're talking to, or about rather. This episode of Monster Talk is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering Monster Talk listeners a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. 
just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Browse through their unmatched collection of titles, select one and download it. It's that easy. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. Choosing Audible as an advertiser was easy because I really do use it all the time. I've been an Audible member since 2003 and use Audible to prepare for many episodes of this show. Many of the books we talk about on Monster Talk are available as Audible selections. My pick for this month is World War Z, the complete edition by Max Brooks. If you've only seen the movie, you've missed everything wonderful about this title. Modeled after Studs Terkel's oral history of World War II, Brooks takes us on an amazing series of interviews with the people who fought the war against Zed, the shambling Romero-style zombies who very nearly wipe out everyone. The book on its own is brilliant. Despite a clear sense of humor, Brooks never falls into parody here. Yes, he is the son of Mel Brooks and the late, great Anne Bancroft. But it isn't just the amazing writing that makes this my choice for you. In this audible title, you get an amazing star-studded cast of voice actors reading the already great dialogue, including F. Murray Abraham, Alan Alda, Rene Aubergenois, Bruce Boxleitner, Max Brooks, Nikki Klein, Common, Denise Crosby, Frank Darabont, Mark Hamill, Nathan Fillion, Maz Jabroni, Alfred Molina, Simon Pegg, Jurgen Prochnow, Carl Reiner, Rob Reiner, Henry Rollins, Jerry Ryan, Paul Sorvino, John Torturo, and, and many, many more. If you love zombies and haven't heard this incredible audiobook, you need to fix that as soon as possible. With Audible, you can listen to your books on your phone, in your car, while you're mowing the grass, and if you're a Kindle user, you can hop seamlessly between devices with Amazon's WhisperSync. You can select any of Audible's titles when you sign up for your 30-day trial membership at audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. But I give World War Z, the complete edition by Max Brooks, my unconditional recommendation as this month's Monster Talk selection. To download your free audiobook while also supporting this show, just go to audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk and sign up today. That's audibletrial.com forward slash monster talk. That's right. Well, speaking of getting cracking, uh, we're running a little short on time, but <laughs> let's uh, let's talk about this last case, because even though it's not a, um, uh, a huge case, I love the research you did on it. And uh, I, it's a fun I, story. And I, I'm especially interested in uh, the fact that it, at one point during the the write up of this story about this creature, there's uh, one of the crewmen is quoted as saying, and it ain't the sea serpent for he's too round for that air creature, which I just think <laughs> <Yes>. is. <laughs> there you go. So that was uh, Karen will appreciate this. That was me being my literary detective, you see. Uh -huh. Because um, it seems very unlikely that, that a reporter was doing that. And, you know, he's supposedly had the captain tell the version. And so the captain is able to do sort of the vernacular. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and and, and it, it just it, none of it rang true. But, but we're getting ahead of our story. <laughs> sure. So we are talking about the Kraken. And it, it ain't a crack of nonsense either. It's uh, <laughs> it's a uh, wait for the laughter to subside again <laughs> or the growth. <laughs> but uh, I was talking about how I find uh, I find stories. Uh, I just keep my antenna out 
all the time, pretty much, and always looking and checking things. So when I was happened to be in, in Newfoundland and Labrador, that's not two places anymore. That's the province of Newfoundland and Labrador. But I have been in both those separately. Labrador is a bleak place. Uh, but I was uh, I was there to work on a problem for Monster Quest, and then as I often do, uh, I I stay an extra week or two when I go to someplace exotic, and exotic means outside Buffalo, <laughs> and um, I try to look into other things. But anyway, in in fiddling around in that area and buying up an armload of books, you see, Strange Mysteries of Newfoundland or whatever I came across. And uh, I began to uh, um, be interested again in the Kraken and and um, to, uh, to think about it as a monster that might be interesting. And here was a story about... The Kraken taken down the giant squid that is taking down a uh, a schooner in um, in eighteen seventy four I think and and um, quite a colorful colorful account and as I pursued that about how they. Uh, grabbed up their rifles and, and swords or axes or whatever, and began to chop at the the arms of this this multi-armed creature. And their ship, the Peril P E R I L, went down. And then there was a nearby ship, the Strathoen, or however that's Strathoen, I guess. I, I don't know. I won't try to figure out the British. Um, so they picked up the surviving crew members and so forth. But when I looked around and began to try to find other accounts and to see how well they they agreed, uh, they didn't agree much at all. The account of the newspaper was, the newspaper title was different. The per P-E-R-I-L became P-E-A-R-L. Captain Flood became Captain Floyd. And worst <laughs> of all, it was moved from somewhere south of Newfoundland to the Indian Ocean's Bay of Bengal. <laughs> and uh, that's a pretty serious difference. And so by then, uh, I was I was pretty skeptical. Um, and and was wondering whether the story itself was was true and beginning to think it probably wasn't. And I, I knew that Arthur C. Clarke had credited it. He, he thought it was, if it had been anywhere else, he said, other than the, the stayed times, uh, the times of London, uh, he would have doubted it himself. But the times, you know, wouldn't have messed around with silliness and so forth. You could count on the times. <laughs> and it seemed to me that argument only went so far. And then I found that, in fact, when we looked that up, we found that it, they got it from the Homeward Mail, which you and I have probably never heard of. And so we have to find that obscure publication, which Mr. Binga did do. Nice work. He got that for me. 
I encourage him all the time I can. <laughs> and uh, so that's when we realized that this was uh, the phrase communicated to the Indian papers. Mm. <laughs> you know, note the passive voice there. Yeah. And so forth. Not, not, not very, not very credible. It was, was communicated. Was mm-hmm. communicated. And um, so I began then to analyze that, and uh, to make a long story short, um, it's got all these elements in it that sounds like a made-up story, mm-hmm. and it ain't the sea serpent, for he's too round <laughs> for that ear critter. <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. Well, of course, the the Times of London would have had questions about that, but it was put in quotation marks, but... So what really comes down to, I think, in that case, is that the schooner, the or let me rephrase that, the alleged schooner uh, was a hundred and fifty tonner. Mm-hmm. And how mu- how much does a giant squid weigh? Probably less than a ton. Yeah. And you tell me how a one-ton creature. I don't care how many arms it's got, and I don't care how much it's gone to university and studied, you know, the the (laughs) counterbalance effects or anything. I'm just doubting that they, their mama didn't teach them how to do that. (laughs) They they were not able to um, pull down a 150 ton scooter. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I and I and I I came to that. I didn't find where other people were saying that. That doesn't that strike you as a pretty obvious, you know? So yeah, our friends yeah. said, "Well, it was, yeah. it was after all, it was it was quite obvious." Once again, Nickel just does oh, the yeah, obvious. Yeah. <laughs> after the fact, yeah. you know. Well, maybe they have a point. <laughs> um, but I wonder why so many of these obvious things that I come up with, and and in my this is my 50th anniversary. It's my 50th year doing this. Wow. And I wonder why that I'm always finding these these obvious things and nobody else for in this in this case, you know, 100 and some 150 years or whatever do somebody do the math quickly. 145 years. Well, a century and a half, you see. Yeah, yeah. About a century and a half. So um, nobody that I saw had pointed that out about this whole matter. And and part of that is because they assume that the giant squid, you see, we don't know how big they can get. And the Kraken was already built up with legend of doing just such stuff. But mm-hmm. that the the legend building was done by people, I mean, no more so than by Jules Verne. Uh, he he started a lot of this. Yeah, and uh, so I think we can say that that story, because there is no uh, when I when I tried to run it down, and others had done some of this for me, um, that there really wasn't um, such a ship and such a captain and so forth. Um, so it, it, it just 
has all the elements. Even even the Bay of Bengal is just not a not that I could find a known habitat for the for the squid, the giant squid. So your hypothesis, our preferred hypothesis, is... preferred hypothesis. Well, I hope it becomes preferred, and, yeah. <laughs> and you can help me here. Is well, that you can help this one? And, and you know, uh, we're always willing to spill a little bit more ink for the kraken. Um, the black uh, <laughs> ink. <laughs> but the, the, this one uh, is literary fiction, uh, or 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 de- deliberate deception, or something along those lines. There's plenty of evidence in this case that this one didn't happen. How 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 would I don't want to put words in your mouth? How would you sum this one up? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right. I think uh, somebody uh, made up a story, and uh, probably was influenced by Jules Verne. Okay. And such stories were kind of coming out of uh, the you know distant legends of the Kraken, and somebody decided to pass that off to a to a newspaper as a story, and I. Mm-hmm. It, it it must have been a hoax. Uh, it, it it can't have happened innocently. I don't think somebody sat down and wrote this, knowing that they were making things up. Mm-hmm. And uh, the only story behind it is basically Jules Verne's similar similar story. And uh, you know the giant squid attacking the submarine and. Them coming out and cutting off tentacles and so forth. That's out of Jules Verne. Yep. Mm-hmm. So yes, I would say it's a literary a literary production uh, that's you know then transformed into a newspaper hoax. I guess that makes sense. Would, would be how I would say it. Mm-hmm. Unless you want to you want to improve on that, but I, then we'll call it. We'll be <laughs> unanimous, and it'll be the preferred hypothesis. Sounds good. And let no one dare to <laughs> to change a a job. No otters again. <laughs> the, <laughs> I actually am impressed that uh, Skeptical Inquirer has done more with their online archives, so you can get to these stories now. I could put links to these in the show notes. Well, I think we were going to ask you what you're working on these days, but now we know not to ask. That. <laughs> you know not to ask that. Yeah. That's, so that's we won't. right. Yeah. That's right. I, I mean, it just is folly because all of a sudden you, you'll get people who, uh, the best case scenario is people will call you or whatever and they'll tell you what they think. And they probably are stating the obvious. So when you write your article, they'll say, well, Nickel didn't even give me credit. <laughs> <laughs> right, because you were the 14th person who called and, and you know, and. So that's one possibility. The other is competitive people will try to see if they can, you know, get that Nobel Prize. Get first. Yeah. I just know that <laughs> I, I, I'm now going to be working on horned sea camel research for the rest of my career is what I'm going to be doing. <laughs> yeah, we'll put that out there. <laughs> well, you know, there's a there's a place for that uh, that imagery somewhere in the, I, I, in a children's book or something. Oh, hey. And, no. I, yeah. and we've, yeah. we've we've neglected we've neglected to mention one point um about the the Gloucester serpent 
and that is that the narwhal is known as the unicorn of the sea. Yes. Oh, great name. <laughs> that, that might, that I should have gotten that in somewhere. Uh, not essential, but it's it's uh, it's showing up in children's books and stuff. The narwhal, and uh, I'm kind of serious when I say I was worried that if I didn't get it in print soon, somebody was going to put this old Gloucester idea and the modern knowledge because we have a lot of knowledge now about the narwhals, and I think the people in Gloucester, Mass, uh, probably I'm just. I'm not sure of this, but I just doubt that they knew anything about something called the narwhal. Mm-hmm. I just doubt that they had an old set of Encyclopedia Britannicas that had, <laughs> you know, an entry on that or something. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know why they would have known it. Most seafaring people wouldn't have known, maybe, um, because they're again pretty far north and mm-hmm. not not so well known until now. They're well-known enough to be called the Unicorn of the Sea in their children's books yeah. that have narwhals, yeah. which is good. And somebody someday, somebody someday, the right person will come along and will tell how that ancient story, 200 years old, uh, after all, it was it was the narwhal, boys and girls. Mm-hmm. And it was the Unicorn of the Sea, and some guy named... Uh, nickel, dime, something like that, uh, who died in obscurity, uh, figured that out. And everybody said, oh, it was, it was obvious. <laughs> and it drove him to, a, it was drove him to an early death. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Uh, There's a story. Thank you for all of the work that you do, Joe. This is really interesting to hear about all these cases and really impressive work that you've done. Thank you so much. I I live for the occasional compliment from a colleague <laughs> because nobody else cares, and um, it's not like there's a lot of money out there or anything. Yeah. But mm-hmm. you know, there's sort of first of all is 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 kind of your own sense of uh, well, I like doing this. I I still eight years old. Some part of me wants to solve <laughs> things. Mm-hmm. And and maybe secondly, you you have some notion that it's important that we're even on silly subjects like monsters, as some people think it's silly. I don't. I think all of these teach us about ourselves and our world profitably. We can mm-hmm. profitably learn. And uh, yeah, finally, if you get a compliment, that's great. <laughs> and, uh, and uh, well, I, that's it. This is uh, this it. is one more chance for me to say my favorite thing, which is that in the world of monsters, we see the full spectrum of belief writ small. So <laughs> I, I think it's always worth learning about things that can help you learn more about humanity and yourself. So there's there's nothing absolutely. Yeah. I think so, and uh, it's it's just a, it, it, there's there's plenty to reflect on when you go back. You see, and we've done a bit of that to look at at the people there at Gloucester Bay in 1817, and then fast forward to to uh, us mm-hmm. uh, two centuries later, and how much more indifferent we know and think we know. Maybe we don't know it all yet, and uh, interesting to compare. 
conclusions they jumped to and so forth, but to cut them a little slack because they didn't have things like Mr. Google. Or and Mr. Binga. We do. Yeah. Or Mr. Binga, that's right. And and that we, you know, we do the best we can, but we don't know that we're getting to the bottom of things always quite right. Preferred hypothesis yeah. just means preferred. It doesn't mean it won't be replaced. Yeah. And I always try to remember the time that I rushed into print thinking that I'd solved the Mothman by saying it was another barn owl, and mm-hmm. it wasn't. I'm glad I discovered myself that I was wrong rather than having it pointed out to me. Yes. <laughs> but uh, I did uh, did correct that, and, and you know, it's a lesson I knew. I, I, I shouldn't have had to learn it again, is that there's there's no substitute for when you can going to lo- on location and trying to get out of your armchair in your ivory yeah. tower. Absolutely. And uh, and I have still have mm-hmm. a little work to do, you see, on on the case to see why the narwhals were, were where they are. I mean, I think that could be maybe a, the subject of a blog or something, and I finesse that. But Definitely. So if you're in agreement that we've solved the three, three of these uh, very cold cases... One very, very, very cold, cold case. <laughs> 200 years cold. So, or, or icy yes. water's cold. There's, there's so many cold. Um, all right. Well, th- Joe, as always, th- thank you not only for talking to us, but for the work that you do. So I, yes. I think our listeners yes. will appreciate this. And uh, if they don't, obviously, they can send their hate mail to the Times of London. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, edit it, edit it out, edit out the bad parts and get it down to the right size and take out anything except, of course, the moments of you know, real hilarity that I, that I managed. <laughs> I, I'll tighten it up. Don't you worry. So. <laughs> Were there, if there were any. No, no, no. I think know. this is, this is going to be minimal effort here. This is good. Uh, so thank you. Okay. Thank you for your time. Uh, When's this one coming out? Um, my guess would be mid December. Uh, I've got two more in the okay, can. I'm trying great. to get out. So, um, great. okay. And, uh, uh, and then I'll really be 75. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> Happy birthday. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> Monster Talk. You've been listening to Monster Talk, the science show about monsters. I'm Blake Smith. And I'm Karen Stolzner. You just heard an interview with Joe Nickel, one of the most experienced mystery investigators of the paranatural, talking about three sea monster cases that he feels he solved. If you'd like to read the case files, check our show notes, and that'll give you a guide to his full investigations. Do you have feedback? Do you have theories or comments about Joe's solutions? Let us know in the comments or on our Facebook page. Links to those are in the show notes as well. You're listening to the extended commercial-free Patreon edition of Monster Talk. Thank you so much for your support. After lots of effort, we finally got our Monster Talk merchandise store open. And you can get to it by going to bit.ly forward slash shop monster talk. That's bit.ly forward slash shop monster talk and there you're going to find t-shirts stickers mugs buttons cups hoodies and more all based on the new monster talk show logo which should be showing up in your podcasting app if it hasn't already there's a big sale going on right now 30 percent off everything so hop on over to bit.ly forward slash shop monster talk we hope you've enjoyed this episode of monster talk 
Each episode, we strive to bring you the very best in monster-related content with a focus on bringing scientific skepticism into the conversation. If you enjoy Monster Talk, we now have a variety of ways to support the show, all with convenient links at monstertalk.org forward slash support. That's monstertalk.org forward slash support. We have links there to our Patreon page as well as a donation button. Another great way to support the show is to buy books from our Amazon Monster Talk wish list, which directly helps us with our research. We love used books very much, so don't feel compelled to buy new ones. And we love Kindles, so we can share our digital libraries with each other. And finally, without spending any money at all, you can support us by leaving a positive review at iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Positive reviews help keep us visible in iTunes, which is a great way to help us find new listeners. And please share our show on your favorite social media platforms. Monster Talk is a production of Monster House, LLC. Our theme song is by Peach Stealing Monkeys. As always, thank you for listening. Monster House presentation.